Welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And this is a special podcast. I'm really excited about this. I'm sitting in my office right now, and my wife is making faces at me to try to get me to laugh, but it's not going to work. Um, But it is a special podcast because what I'm about to play you is a recording of Caitlin's message that she delivered at our Galentine's Day party. Um, It was our sixth grade girls all the way to 12th grade girls. It was an awesome event um, that they did. Fun games, worship, and my wife spoke on the topic of the toxic myth of self-love. And uh, and so this was a... uh, a message that is needed even for just in our culture in general, because our culture has such a twisted view of what love is and uh, that the key to self-esteem, or you could translate that as salvation is to first love yourself to um, treat yourself is what uh, the parks and recs people talk about. Uh, and anyways, uh, it's all it's all throughout uh, it's all throughout our culture, and so Caitlin picks apart um, those lies and deceptive myths, um, really that is inundating and infiltrating so many uh, minds and hearts of young girls in our culture, and even guys. And so, sadly, as she was recording this, we were she did an awesome job live. It was phenomenal, but our camera cut out, and so we lost the recording, the live recording, but. We have a recording that Caitlin recorded herself um, later on, and so that's why you won't hear um, the audience laughing with her or crying with her, Um, but we hope that the content here still ministers to your soul and is encouraging to you. And so enjoy this. Uh, This is the woman I get to spend my life with, and I hope that she is an encouragement to you. Hey guys, welcome to Galentine's Night. I'm so thankful you're all here today. It's such a blessing to be together as ladies, and what a better way to celebrate Valentine's Day than being together, right? As most of you know, I'm Caitlin Stead. I'm married to JT Stead, the youth pastor here, and I feel honored to be able to speak to you today on the topic of love. And tonight will be more of a persuasive argument instead of an exposition of scripture. So although I'll be jumping around in scripture here, feel free to park your Bibles in Matthew 22. I know we all come to the table with many thoughts, feelings, concerns, or even frustrations with Valentine's Day. We're all obsessed with the idea of love, right? For example, not sure if you know the drama with all that number one song out there called Driver's License. JT and I got the lowdown from my younger sister on who likes who and the guy that was mean to the brunette girl, and now he's with the blonde, and the story goes on. The point is, though, we're all consumed with the idea of love, even if you consider yourself a skeptic. And no matter how much drama comes our way, we're still willing to take the plunge because we want to be loved and to love as well. Maybe you're feeling sad today you don't have a romance, love, or boyfriend. Maybe you're feeling jealous of your friend or leader who has a boyfriend or husband and you're sitting there wishing you had that too. Or maybe you're just annoyed by the whole holiday and you feel like you're an independent woman who doesn't need any man. Well, I'm here to tell you today that no matter how you're feeling, that God has something to say about that. God's word has something to say about basically everything that concerns you. We serve a God who is in control of all things and yet intimately acquainted with your heart and all that grieves you. And I hope to encourage you today on the topic of love, but not in the way you might think. 
This won't be a typical talk on love that you may be used to hearing on a day like today. I'm not here to tell you that you're beautiful and worthy and lovable, although I do think you all are pretty beautiful, for sure. <laughs> I'm not here to tell you to use this holiday as a way to pray for your future husband, because truthfully, I'm not even sure that God will give you marriage in your future. I'm not here to get you to remember just how amazing you are and that Jesus thought you were so worthy to die for. Really, what I'm here to expose to you today is that living in this sinful world, I'm sure you're all believing lies about the topic of love that you may not even know you're believing. Think for a second with me. When you think of the world and what the world is teaching, the non-Christian world, and maybe even some who claim to be Christians, about love, what are some things you think about? I want to touch on the topic that I have found to be the one of the most concerning in our culture, one that is so popular in today's world. This mantra, phrase, promise to you is one that I think is most deceiving, as it sounds like it might be true and appealing, but it really isn't biblical. You see, that's how the enemy works at times. It's what's so dangerous. Often, a truth is mixed with a lot of lies and is convincing to us because it appeals to our fleshly desires. This is why the Bible says we always need to be on guard and test every doctrine according to God's word. So the lie that the world is telling you today is this. You cannot love others until you love yourself. Raise your hand if you've heard that. <laughs> now that everyone's hands are up. When I googled love yourself, here are some of the quotes that came up. And the what I call Hallmark quotes. But this website assured you that it will make you mentally stronger, so don't worry. So let's see. First one. Work on being in love with the person in the mirror who has been through so much and is still standing. Or, always take care of yourself first. Or, you can't pour from an empty cup. Take care of yourself. And my favorite one. If you're searching for that one person that will change your life, take a look in the mirror. <laughs> now, I used to have a lot of these quotes in my phone, so please don't feel silly or bad if you do. I'm not here to make fun of you or make light of it even, but to show you how prevalent this is today and to persuade you to think differently. There are books, sermons, talks, arguing from a theological and psychological perspective that self-esteem and self-acceptance play a crucial role in your Christian life and that that alone determines how you can love other people. Loving ourselves is now a prerequisite to how we are to love others. This idea is twisted as it comes from the passage in Matthew 22 that says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So, often this is used as a way to justify loving ourselves. This is a classic case of taking a verse out of its original context. You see, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus in a theological and political conundrum. They knew the law. They wanted to see what Jesus might say. The Pharisees were not good to other people. They were not lovers of men. They used people, abused them, stole money from them. So naturally, they didn't love others well. And yet God was saying, you still care for yourself well. You feed yourself when you're hungry. You seek to gain money from others. 
even at the expense of them. Sorry, you seek to gain money for yourself, even at the expense of others. Treat others the way you would seek comfort, satisfaction, and your own needs for yourself. So this verse cannot be a justification for the self-love culture that would say, Oh, well, see, the Bible says I'm supposed to be loving myself. And even if you look into the Bible and what it says we ought to do in regards to ourselves, what does it say? Luke 9, 24. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And Matthew 10, 34. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And here's one more, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So even in this verse, we see that our bodies are not for us and for our own enjoyment alone, but for the Lord. This is tricky, huh? I think as often as women, often we are pulled into this lie because right off the bat, it doesn't seem too bad. We don't want to get in the habit of hating ourselves or beating ourselves up for the things we say or do, right? We do want to appreciate the way God has made us fearfully and wonderfully made, as Psalm 139 says. And yes, this is all correct. We're also pulled into this because it is natural to us. From the time we are born, we know how to do this. There's an article that came out today called, How to Love Yourself on This Galentine's Day. Listen to a quote from this. Recognize that you were born loving yourself. Babies know they're beautiful. They don't need any validation. See? Even a non-Christian source can affirm what the Bible says, that we are born loving ourselves. And while they say that's a good thing, we know in Scripture it is not. In fact, we can still be thinking horrible things about ourselves while also practicing self-love. What do I mean by that? Well, the love we feel towards ourselves isn't romantic in nature, obviously, but it's a love that seeks our own self-interest. Ultimately, it's selfishness, self-gratification, self-preservation, and self-justification. And that's only half the issue. These quotes, the world's version of wisdom, while they diagnose the issue that we have a problem with ourselves, they don't have the right solution. Their solution to our problem in the search for love is that we ought to love ourselves, be satisfied with who we are, and then we can serve and love others. The antidote then to hating yourselves, to lack of self-esteem, as they'd coin, they would say is to love yourself more. Simple. But is it that simple? And is that our best solution? At this point, you might be thinking, well, Caitlin, what about the people that really do hate themselves? They hate the way they look. They blame themselves for the hard things in their lives. And to that, I would say I'm just as grieved and saddened for them as you are. And I'm not wanting to be too harsh so as to seem insensitive by any means. I'm also saddened by this pain. But I'm here today to convince you that what the world has to tell you, that you need a crash course in self-love to not be insecure anymore or to not self-loathe, is not going to solve your issue. I'm here to tell you that the Bible has something to say about the hatred of self and the love of self, and they're one in the same. What's the common denominator? Me self. That's the culpa that we believe will set us free and instead is actually enslaving us. To say it plainly, we are self-obsessed. 
self-obsession, which presents itself often as overt pride and boastfulness, and self-hatred, that looks often like insecurity, are not mutually exclusive, meaning they have the same root. You know, growing up, I often had what people would call low self-esteem. The Bible doesn't actually have a term for this psychological term. It doesn't have a category for it, but I would call it close to fear of man. I often thought of what others thought of me, how I looked, my athletic ability, my weight, if I was funny, all of the above. I essentially became my own God. I grew up competitively dancing for all my life, so I was really given to comparing my abilities to people, always wanting to be better. And then I stopped dancing and I had kind of an identity crisis. Remember, when you're your own God, you will do anything to preserve your image. For me, it mattered a great deal to me that others thought I was thin and healthy and small. My idol was my definition of being thin. This eventually developed into a pretty serious eating disorder. This was my way of controlling and dealing with the deep insecurity I felt. I ate too little at times, dropping weight far too quick, and then I realized that wasn't as sustainable, so I began becoming quite gluttonous, eating much more than my stomach could satisfy, and then purging that so I didn't have to deal with the consequences of it. This was a form of justification, and in a lot of ways, workspace righteousness. While I wouldn't tell you at the time that this was a spiritual issue, it was. Many would say that these types of issues are purely an issue with discipline or lack of self-control, focusing mainly on the outside. And while there's elements of that, this truly is a heart problem, a satisfaction issue, and ultimately the idolatry of self. See how we end up here? How is this a workspace mentality, you might ask? Well, I wanted to feel justified, righteous, but only in comparison to others. If I ate the salad and refused the bread and cookies, well, then I was feeling pretty good that day. And I would say that. I would say, I'm, I'm doing really good today, as if it was a moral issue. If I ate too much pizza, well, then my day was practically over. I was, quote unquote, bad, which is not a moral issue. If I followed what I deemed the Ten Commandments of healthy eating, I was justified before my God, myself. And like I said, when your God is yourself, you will do anything to satisfy it, to preserve your image no matter the cost, even if that means not eating. You'll go to all lengths to preserve what you see as righteous or good. But it led me nowhere good. I was not more righteous in God's eyes. In fact, God doesn't care about what you eat, but why you eat what you do and what your heart is saying. And when you're consumed with self, you don't have the capacity to think of what God may want or what honors him, right? It's a bottomless pit. And I just have to stop and say today, if any of you are in this place, I want you to know that there's a way out, no matter how far deep you're in. I've been where you are. I know the pain you feel and the heartache of thinking you'll never be free, but you will, I have. No matter what sin you're stuck in, God has always made a way out for you. Tell somebody today and ask for help. I know you won't regret it. So, I remember in middle school recognizing my insecurity and I knew what I was doing wasn't right and I wanted to fix it. So I tried, as most told me to, to just love myself more. So I took myself to the mirror and told myself, you are beautiful, you're confident, you're unique, you're special, you have a lot going for you. And then this spiraled quickly into, your hair is, well, it's not quite as thick as hers. Your eyes are, well, they're, they're blue, but 
my eyelashes aren't quite as long as hers are. And you're a good dancer, but you're not as great as she is. You could see how this went, right? Because truthfully, I could never muster up enough love to outshine my insecurity. And when it came down to it, my insecurity, though masked as humility, was just as prideful and arrogant as the boastful. It's all about me. And you, today, if you're obsessed with the idea of loving yourselves, or you're wrestling through an inordinate amount of insecurity that you're in the pit of, which God calls pride, there is a way out. I'm here today to encourage you that the Bible has an answer for this, and you can find freedom in Christ as you look to his word for answers. This remedy for loving yourself is actually a great practice for any indwelling sin. Whether that's negative body image, jealousy, coveting, insecurity, it's all rooted in pride and the obsession with self. So, what does the Bible say about this? Well, we've already explored Matthew 22 that shows us that loving ourselves is a given, and we ought to treat ourselves how we treat others. But what do we do with the day-in and day-out feelings about me that we can't quite seem to shake? Our minds are so intertwined daily with self-affirmation that we're afraid if we stop those thoughts, then we'll take a nosedive into self-pity. But that just isn't the case. Tim Keller explains in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, this quote, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less, but it's thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to connect everything with myself. It's not needing to think about myself. It's an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? Or if you came in today and you thought, what if these people are looking at me? What if they care about the way I look? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. This is our only true blessed rest and your only true freedom, ladies. And if you're like me, a natural skeptic, listen to God's word with me on who he is and what motivates us to love. 1 John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know of us is that it did not know him. Deuteronomy 7. Know therefore the Lord your God is God, a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 John 4, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Ladies, we're able to stop for to, we are able to forget ourselves and stop the obsession with self by remembering who has first loved us. This is not something we can muster up within ourselves. We know because we've tried, huh? Romans 5.8 says that, But God shows his love for us, and then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love because we were first loved. When you're able to recognize the love of God in Christ, it is no question why we need to forget ourselves. We have no space for us in our minds because Christ will occupy it. And when we remember that our identity, if we are in Christ, is fixed in the person and the work of Christ in union with him, on the cross, on our behalf, then we have every reason to rejoice that we are made by God and for him. Take a look with me at who Jesus is. Matthew twenty twenty eight says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, who was the Son of God, who had every right to bolster himself and think of himself highly, which would have been honoring to him, came to serve us, a sinful people. Jesus' life had nothing to do with his serving himself and seeking his own desires. Even to the cross, Jesus prayed to be relieved of the suffering he was to endure. And yet he said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. What selfless sacrifice. And think with me about John 13. This is when Jesus and the disciples were having a meal together. And Jesus got up. And what did he do? He washed the disciples' feet. He had every right to ask them, even command them, to do so for him as he was the Christ. And he had no regard for himself, but instead served them sacrificially. Jesus was the suffering servant on your behalf. He didn't have to love you in this way, and yet he served and even suffered in your place. Just a few chapters later in John 15, the Bible says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus did that for you. Let that motivate you to renounce the God of self and run to the arms of your suffering servant who had every right to think of himself and yet gave himself up as a ransom for many, for you. Ladies, this isn't an easy task. This isn't anything magical that you snap your fingers and all of a sudden you're fine. And I know you may be thinking, well, Caitlin, you don't know the things I've been through and how deep my pain and insecurity is. And you're right on that. I don't know exactly. And honestly, you don't know what pains me lately, but God does, and that's where we rest. And even if no one on earth understands your exact pain, God's word says in Hebrew 1, 3, Hebrews 1.3 that he upholds the universe by the word of his power so you can trust that he will uphold your life and meet your every need. This is the Christian life. The Christian life is filled with many instances of small obedience to God, leaning into the Holy Spirit as your only strength to move forward. And you will reap the benefit as Christ is glorified in you. Even for me lately, I have felt so weak for the Lord that I have no strength left to muster in myself as I wait on the Lord. And yet his goodness to me is that he gives me instances where I get to trust him and and believe that he is going to work through me. And he can for you today. And I want to say to anyone here who doesn't know Christ, I want to call you to repent today and believe in him. This is the only way out of your situation, the only freedom and perfect peace you will ever know. 
Our sin of self-loathing and all other sin you commit only leads to one outcome, eternal death and separation from God. But God made a way for you in sending Jesus to die in your place and rise again so you can be in a relationship with him now and forever. Repent today. Please turn to him and find someone at your table to pray with. If I could leave you with anything today, it would be to look at the Savior. The passage in Matthew 12 that we already talked about is an impossible task to love our neighbor as ourself. And it's designed that way. That's the law. And it's there to remind you that you cannot do it without Christ. You can't love your neighbor as you ought or love God as you ought. So what can you do? You can. Remember Christ's sacrifice for you. If you know him today, remember what he's done for you. Don't look inward. Look outward. Remember the gospel. It's not about reminding yourself how amazing you are, or even that God made you the way you are, even though that is true and beautiful. But freedom only comes as we run to Christ and keep our eyes fixed on Him. A verse that has been so influential in my own life as I've experienced many seasons of worry and anxiety is this. Isaiah 26, 3-4 You keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord your God is an everlasting rock. Perfect peace comes from a mind that is stayed on Christ. And my prayer for you today is whatever you're facing in your life, that God would help you to keep your mind stayed on Him. Continue to take every thought captive and run to Christ. What I have learned over the years is this. The seasons in my life that have been defined by self-centeredness have been my most miserable. And the times in my life that have been the most fulfilling and peaceful are when I've removed myself from the center, even in the midst of pain and suffering. I chose to reorient myself around God, His truth, and His people, this church. And I remembered that I'm not enough, and I need Christ. And I so desire this for you as well.